0: you bow with me for a word of prayer this morning as we begin our time heavenly father we certainly would be failing to recognize the reality of our dependence upon you if we just simply approach you without asking for you to attend to our time lord we know that you have given us your spirit we know that you have given us all things we need for life and godliness your word tells us that And your Spirit leads us into all truth. And so we trust this morning as we open your Word together that our minds and hearts will be enriched by what you tell us and by the things that we hear that we might put them into practice in our life. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, once again, we have the opportunity to open the Word of God together. So if you're not already there, I'll ask you to open your Bibles with me to our study of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we have been looking at the beginning of this section of Scripture that really begins in chapter 12 and takes us all the way through chapter 16, and we started to look at it a few weeks ago, and I cannot emphasize enough how important it is for us to grasp all that God is saying to us here through the Apostle Paul concerning how we are to live as Christians. I say that with emphasis at the beginning because this is for Christians. In other words, unbelievers cannot do this. There is no power for them to accomplish what God is requiring and what God is asking for His people to do. That's why Paul spent so many pages, if you will, writing, so many parchment pages writing the first 11. What we have is 11 chapters in the beginning of what it means to know God. Well, your condition before knowing Jesus Christ, and what happens if you believe upon Jesus Christ in your very soul. That's why when you come to chapter 12, he calls us brethren. He is one of us. This is for the Christian. And if you have been paying attention as we have been going along, then you know that God is give, what God is giving us here is the great motive for living life in Christ. And that motive is an understanding of the great truths that we heard already concerning salvation in chapters 1 through 11. We notice that even from the beginning of Paul's words in chapter 12, where it begins, Therefore, I urge you, therefore, and the words, by the mercies of God. Point, those words point us back and show us that this living, this Christian behavior, how we are to live in practice is the outflow of a thanks to God for all that He has done for us. It is a practice of gratitude, a practice of thankfulness to God. And we were reminded last Lord's Day, as we looked again at these first two verses, and we are beginning being reminded that the gratitude that is to be in our hearts is also to be seen in the presenting of ourselves, our minds, our bodies, our spirit, the whole of who we are, as Paul continues in verse 1. It is by the mercies of God... Present your bodies. That's all of ourselves. We present ourselves as a sacrifice to God. Notice, it's not as a one-time presentation. It's rather an ongoing. It is a continual. It is an offering, a living sacrifice to God. And we are to offer the best of ourselves that we can. It is to be holy holy. We present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Living is the idea of continual, ongoing. The sacrifices of the Old Testament are a one-time deal. You present your offering, the animal dies, that's it. We are a living sacrifice and we are a holy sacrifice, the best, the best of the sacrifices. One that is, as Paul says it here, acceptable to God. Acceptable to God. One that is pleasing in the sight of God. One that brings Him pleasure and joy. Now that's an important distinction for us to make as we begin to look at this again this morning. Our obedience to God is to be holy. Holy. That is simply to say that at a very base level, at a very beginning level, that our lives are to be different. That's the essence of holiness in one sense. God is utterly not like us. God is holy in all of his character in all of who he is in his very essence and that he is different than anything in his created order because he is not like us. And so we too in our obedience is to be holy. It is to be different. In other words, how we live as Christians. How we live as people is not to be like what we may currently be doing or what we may currently be seeing others do. We think oftentimes, well, if I see them do it or if what I'm doing, it must be okay before God. Well, we can't not make the decision like that. What do I mean? Well, in today's evangelical community, there are things done And there are Christian labels attached to things done that may or may not be holy things. They might not be set apart things. They may not be acceptable to God things. And this becomes very practical for our living for us to know this. For example, now, before I say what I'm going to say, I realize that I'm running a risk. I'm running a risk of doing what some preachers and pastors like to avoid we don't like to really step on the air hose of the people sitting in the congregation so that they're going "Ah." you know as one of my friends and mentors who's been here rick holland says it's time to get in the kitchen and turn the heat up a little bit well before i turn the heat up on this i'm running the risk of causing some of us to struggle And I don't personally desire for that to happen, but I do desire for us to think biblically about Christian living. For example, then, there are those within the evangelical community, and I know that this wouldn't be any of us because we wouldn't think this way, but there are some who would say that unless you homeschool your children, you are not being obedient to the commands of Scripture. In other words, unless you live your life by way of, as a Christian, by way of homeschooling your children, you are not obedient to God. You are not offering yourself continually and separately as a sacrifice that is acceptable to God. Now, I can honestly say that homeschooling your children can be a great thing and a wonderful privilege as a Christian. But it can also be a wrong thing. And doing either isn't necessarily a biblically commanded thing. You understand what I'm saying? Whether you homeschool or don't homeschool is neither a biblically commanded thing. But some have made it out to be a commanded thing. And thereby they have attached to it a requirement for how you are to live and raise your Christian family. In other words, many have made it a holy thing. Now, that's just one example. There are others. The idea of something holy creeps into what you eat or what you do not eat. It has crept into evangelicalism at, at, at infinitum in these areas. For others, it may be what you wear or what you do not wear. For others, it may be what activities must happen in the church What music must be played in the church? What must be sung or what must not be sung in the church? How long the church service should be or it should not be? All of these things have become, by some in evangelicalism, holy things. These are just examples. Things, life choices, behaviors, what we do. They are part of the... Set apart to God things that Christians must do, many say. And yet, whether or not they are, cannot be decided from the realm of subjective opinion. Whether they are or not, cannot be decided from the realm of my own subjective opinions. They must be decided from objective truth, rightly divided. Rightly understood and applied. And I want to speak to this a bit this morning because you notice in verse 1 of Romans chapter 12 that there is a qualifier here in the words of Paul placed upon the presenting of ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice, those things which are acceptable to God. And that qualifier concerning that presenting of ourselves is where our service is derived from. He says, present yourselves, living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is a service of worship. Doesn't he say that at the end? It's a service of worship, this presenting of ourselves. It's worship to God. But where is that service derived from? It gives it in the final phrase, which is your spiritual service of worship. It's a very interesting statement. It's a very interesting way that Paul puts right there at the end of this Verse And before we move on to verse 2, we need to understand what is clearly being said here in verse 1. You notice that our service to God is a worship of God, right? The presentation of our bodies to God is a service of worship of God. In other words, the service of us is the means of our worship of God. The service of us to God is a means of our worship of God. Therefore, the presenting of ourselves to God is worship of God. That is simply to say that we worship God not simply by coming to church, not simply by being with the people of God at times like we are here this morning, but we worship God through every aspect of our lives. So we could even come to the conclusion, at least at the beginning, as we're starting this, that worship and service are interchangeable terms. Worship and service are interchangeable terms. We serve God by presenting ourselves, and that service to God is a worship of God. And therefore, we worship God by way of serving God. So when we worship God, we serve, and when we serve, we are worshiping God, you see? And so in offering ourselves to God as living and holy and acceptable sacrifices, we are worshiping God. Therefore, my whole life, everything I do in my life, what I think, what I say, what I do in my life, my whole life is to be a worship of God. But notice there is that qualifier attached to it. In other words, my service to God isn't just some willy-nilly service to God. I can just dream up anything I want to do. And if I'm doing it and I call it spiritual, then it must be uh, worship to God. Do whatever I want. Whatever makes me feel good. No, it's not that. It's to be a, the New American Standard says, a spiritual service of worship. Your other translations might say reasonable, reasonable, reasonable service. Now, you may be here this morning, and just as I say that our service is to be reasonable, you say to yourself, okay, all right, Pastor, I I get what you're saying. I understand. You're saying that in light of what God has done for me, in light of my salvation, according to the mercies of God, in light of the fact that God has saved me by His mercy and continues every day, every morning, to shine these mercies upon my life, in light of that, that it is eminently reasonable for me to give my entire life to him and serve him. In other words, you're defining reasonable as meaning it makes sense uh, that I do what I do in light of the fact that the mercies of God has saved me. It makes sense. It's, It's the base reality. It makes sense that I do what God is asking me to do. In other words, it would be unreasonable for me not to serve God. And while I can certainly resonate with that conclusion in our own hearts and minds, and in some ways that is true, that our serving to the Lord makes sense, unfortunately, that's not what Paul means here. In other words, we're not hearing from Paul here an argument to persuade us to live a certain way. That's what that's what reasonable by that definition would be, a persuasion. In other words, don't serve him the, the other ways because that's unreasonable. It's reasonable. That's a per word of persuasion, trying to persuade us. That's not what Paul is trying to do. No, this is a term that describes the character of the sacrifice that we are presenting. This is part of the character of the sacrifice, which, of course, is us. We are the sacrifice. This is to be our character of our service. In other words, we're not hearing from Paul the idea of persuasion. We are hearing from Paul another description of the character of our service. We've already heard the sacrifice is to be a living sacrifice. That's the character of our sacrifice. That's the character of our presenting. It's to be a living sacrifice, right? It's to be continual. That's the character nature of who we are when we're presenting. We are presenting ourselves continually to God. That's the character of the sacrifice. It's continual. And Paul says, secondly, it's to be holy. That means it's to be set apart. It's to be different. We're not to be like everything else. We're not to be like the world around us. We're offering ourselves to God. We're presenting ourselves. The character of that is to be holy. It's to be set apart. It's to be godlike in its very uh, reflection. And it is to be acceptable to God. That's another character. It's another character. Pleasing to God. Honoring to God. Reflecting of who God is. So all of these are describing what the sacrifice is to be like. What you and I are to be like. And now he adds this fourth. Sacrifice must be reasonable. Reasonable. It's a great word in the original language. And I want to... I want to linger here for a moment. This is important for us to get in our minds because because we're going to get into some very practical things about carrying out our lives as Christians in the following verses, specifically when you get down to verse 9, love without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another. And then you get to chapter 13 and our mind gets blown because it says you need to obey the government over you. What? How am I going to do that? The insanity... Well, you've got to understand right here in verse 1 before you get there, you're going to lose your mind. It's a great word. And all I want to do is linger on this for a moment because this character quality, it's this last character quality that undergirds what we're going to hear in verse 2. Reasonable in the original language is the word logikos. Logikos. It, it comes from the word Logos. We know what the word Logos is. The word Logos is the word word. It's the word. Logos is word. That's what it means in the original language. Logos means in its simplest form this. Something said. That's the simplest form of Logos. Something said, which includes the thought. You don't say things without thinking. Some of us would say you said that without thinking. Well, not really. Your mind was active in that thought. When you said it. And by implication then. It's, it's the reasoning. The mental faculty or motive. That's logikos. The mental faculty. Well, what goes on here in the noodle. And, 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 and really in the, in the Hebrew mindset. The, the, the mind included the heart. Who you really are inside. What drives you. Your thinking. And so when Paul is using the word here, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about something that's mental, something that is calculated in the mind. Our service to God, our service of worship is a calculated in the mind kind of service of worship. It's a calculated in the mind. Let me show you an example of this in 1 Peter chapter 2 just go over really quickly 1st Peter chapter 2 Uh, I just want to show you this because we've seen this before we studied 1st Peter years ago and we we looked at this we didn't go into a lot of detail in this area but but we went through this passage And here 1st Peter chapter 2 Peter exhorts us in verse 2 like newborn babes Long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, right? The word pure, in the New American Standard, the word pure there, some of your Bibles might say sincere, some of them might even say spiritual, right? Like newborn babes, long for the spiritual milk, or the sincere milk of the word. That's the same word that Paul is using in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Long for the unmixed, long for the unadulterated, long for the pure Word of God. Desire it with all of your being, the mind-changing, thought-nourishing milk of the Word. That's what Peter's saying. Long for that. That's simply to say that the Word of God is a mental reality. The Word of God is a mental reality. In other words, unless your mind is nourished, unless your mind is nourished in the Word of God, your body will not be able to accomplish rightly what you are being asked to do. In other words, unless you're thinking right, you're not going to be acting right. Or at least you don't have the capacity to act right because your thinking isn't right. We do go against our thinking oftentimes. We know the truth and we don't do it. That's sin. But you've got to have the truth in you. Now, now take that understanding back to chapter 12. Take that understanding back to Romans 12.1, because Paul is saying the same thing here. Our offering of ourselves, our presenting of ourselves is to be rooted in, it is to be characterized by the mental worship of God. It is to be characterized a thought process, a thinking, which, which we gain from scriptural Saturation. You want to have right action, right behavior, saturate yourself in the Word of God. That's what Paul's saying. I trust that we can see the importance of this. I trust that we can see the importance of why Paul is spending time here because we're going to get into those very tough things. Verse 21, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Are you kidding me? First, you've got you to understand what evil is. In order to overcome it with good, and then you've got to fight your own heart who doesn't want to do that. How are you going to do that if your mind isn't saturated in the truth? Paul's making a contrast, right? We are to be a living sacrifice as opposed to a dead one. We are to be a holy sacrifice as opposed to a polluted sacrifice. We're to be an acceptable sacrifice as opposed to one that is unacceptable. Unacceptable. And here, the fourth thing, Paul is saying we're not simply to be external. Our worship isn't to be simply external activities as if they're worship. No, our worship, our sacrifice of ourselves, what we do is to be characterized by the outflow of an inward, mental, rational, biblically controlled mind. A mind that is bound by the Word of God rightly divided. So you see, there's a tendency today within evangelicalism to define our worship of God by a whole host of external activities, a whole host of external ideas and practices that may or not be characterized by an inward understanding of the truth of the Word of God rightly divided. It's just external. It's just going through the motions. In fact, much of what is done in evangelicalism today, much of what is done flows from no understanding at all as to why they're doing it. Listen, all the external activity in the world is not worship of God if it is not born from a right understanding of the objective truth of God's Word. doesn't matter what it is doesn't matter if it's homeschooling, doesn't matter if it's about diet, what you eat, what you do not eat. Doesn't matter if it's your health practices, how you deal with your health issues within your home and somebody else is dealing them within their home. What we do here in the church doesn't matter if it isn't born of a right understanding of the objective truth of the word of God. If it's externals only, If it isn't born out of a rightly divided word of God, then it is simply pagan ritual that I'm practicing. That's all it is. I'm no different than the pagans who do that very thing. But it isn't worship. And yet here it says, this is exactly what our presenting is to be. It is to be worship. You see, we all have preferences on these kinds of things. We all have... Preferences about how we do things, what we ought to do. And all I'm trying to help us understand is that there are implicit dangers for us as Christians if we do not understand what, what is being said in the word reasonable. If we don't understand that, if we think it's just the base persuasion, then we are going to do all kinds of things that are wrong. And we're going to attach living, holy, and acceptable to God to it, and yet it will be completely unreasonable. Our lives are to be a service to God, born out of a proper mental understanding of what God says, and then that becomes the why we do what we do. And so the presenting of our bodies as a sacrifice to God needs to be, as Paul says, rational, spiritual service. In other words, the principles of the Word of God are to direct everything we do. This is, why, this is why you'll hear me say in private and in public that our feelings or our subjective opinions of others cannot be the determining factor as to why we do what we do. Our feelings and our subjective thinking cannot be the determining factor. In fact, Paul warned the Colossian believers, be careful that you're not taken captive by the philosophies of men, by the traditions of men. Be careful. What was he saying? He's saying this, have your mind mentally rooted in the objective truth of God. Our lives are to be a consistent picture of what the Bible says a Christian is to be. Not what everybody out there says a Christian is to be, what the Bible says a Christian is to be. This is the authority. And while we may, not, while we may like to think that we know just how it is that we are to live, in our subjective opinions and in our subjective feelings, we like to convince ourselves, hey, I got it right, I know how I'm supposed to live, then my question is this, then if we know how to live, then why do we not live that way? If we say this is godly, then why often do we not live that way? Therefore, if we are not living as we ought... And we're either willfully sinning against the God who has shown us the endless mercies or we are willfully and deliberately unwilling to get to know how we are to live. Or maybe even worse yet, we have deceived ourselves into thinking that we know Him at all. You see, we as children of God have no right to either use or abuse ourselves for our own sake. We have no right. We are not our own. We are not our own. You cannot use your your body. You cannot use your mind. You cannot use your words. You cannot use your diet. You cannot use your health care. You cannot use any of that for your own sake. You are not your own. You are God's the way you drive, the way you eat, the way you dress, the way you raise your children, the way you lead your home, the way you use your finances, the way you interact with other Christians, the way you are with God's people on the Lord's day, we do not get to arbitrarily do what we want. We are owned by another. Is it any wonder sometimes that we are unable to overcome the sin that so easily entangles us? Because we've defined it. And to find our living by our own opinions and our own feelings. Our Christian lives have never been about the externals with God. He is always after the internals. God's after your thinking. He's after your heart. He wants your heart. Go with me back to John chapter 4 for a moment. Just so I can illustrate this further. John chapter 4, Jesus is having a conversation with a woman from Samaria. And she says to Jesus, beginning in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. The The contrast going on there is between a, an Orthodox Jew, Jesus, from A Jew and a Samaritan, a half-breed Jew. Those who had intermingled with the people around them, the nations around them. That's what the Samaritans were, and the Jews hated them. Well, our Father, she says, worshipped in this mountain. You people say Jerusalem is the place where you were. We worship externally here. You say Jerusalem is where you are to externally worship. And Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship with that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. You see, the woman is thinking in external terms. That worship is this external activity, this doing of things, this evangelical activity that's on the outside. You worship here, we worship here, you say worship's over there. And that inlays the trouble. There is the problem with the Jews of the day and with so many in so-called evangelical churches today. Some who actually hate true Christianity even. Why? Because true Christianity says that worship of God is an internal reality that's expressed in externals, but it isn't about the externals. You see, it's not the externals that matter, it's the spirit and truth that matters. And so in every area of my life, it is the spirit and truth that must rule my actions. And so that means that I must know the truth. I must know the truth. I can't just lay back and say, well, okay, i got the Spirit in me. He's going to make me do what I want. I'll just stand here like a robot and maybe something will happen. No. We have to know the truth. We have to know the truth. I must understand the truth. I cannot assume that I'm doing that which is sacrificial as romans 12:1 says i can't assume that i'm doing that that it's holy that it's acceptable to god unless it is born from my rightly truth informed thinking here's how paul said it to the corinthian believers whatever you do even eating and drinking do it all to the glory of god 1 corinthians 10:31 that sums it up really we are to be in every part of our lives private and public doesn't matter if you're single or if you're married doesn't matter if you have kids or you don't doesn't matter if you're young or if you're old we are to be in every area at God's disposal for His glory every area whether I eat or drink The mundane things, what I put on, what I take off. When I wake up in the morning, when I lie down at night, every moment in between. I am to be at disposal of God for his glory. That means, as I said before, we cannot use or abuse ourselves for the sake of ourselves. We cannot do that. We are not our own. We are his. We are to be used for him. Go back to Romans chapter 12, because that understanding leads us into verse 2. That understanding leads us into verse 2. I know some of you are saying, man, we're never going to get to verse 2. Well, here we are. I know it only took us three lessons, but here we are. Verse 2. As we begin this, we have to we have to actually stop for a moment. We don't want to cycle through this really fast. We have to stop for a moment and understand this reality. What reality is that? The reality that we are relationship creatures. We are relationship creatures. That may seem obvious to us, but we gotta think about this. You say, What do you mean? I mean we have been created by God to interact with others. That's how we've been created. Some of us would like to think we're hermits and we can live in the mountains by ourselves. But God created us as relational beings to interact with not only others of the creation, but with the Creator. And therefore, we need to make sure as we read what is being said here in verse 2, we need to understand what it means when Paul says world, right? He says in verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world. We've got to understand what world means. Because some have some weird ideas about that. And since we are being exhorted here in verse 2, based upon our understanding of verse 1, just how to relate to the world, right? Do not be conformed to this world. That's a relationship idea. We best not assume what Paul means by the term. Or its related ideas from Scripture because they're used frequently, particularly in the New Testament. And the meaning of it varies greatly. For example, in Galatians... Chapter 1, verse 3. You don't have to turn there. You can write these down. Look at them later if you want. But in Galatians, Paul addresses the believers of Galatia this way. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins, so that He might rescue us from this present evil age. That's a description of the world. The present evil age. That's the idea of world. The word world isn't there, but that's a description that Paul is using To describe world. They and we live in an evil age. John the apostle in his first epistle. First John says this. First John 2. Beginning in verse 15. And going down through verse 17. Do not love the world. Nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world. The love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of the God lives forever. So six times in just those few short verses, John mentions the term world. And he describes it as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. In other words, a strong desire for self. That's a description of the world. It's I see myself pridefully and I live in pride. I live with the lust of the eyes, the lust of self all over the place. That's the idea. That's a description of world. If you were to look at Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, the grand hall of faith says they are to consider themselves to be aliens and strangers of the world. And so here in Romans chapter 12, we hear the preeminent truth concerning what is to control our Christian behavior. This is the preeminent truth that is control our Christian behavior. What is that? We must not conform to this world. We must not conform to this world. So what is Paul meaning by that? Well, the term world can be the physical universe. Someone says, oh, look at the world around us. We could think of the physical universe, the creation around us that we know it to be. But from the context of the passage, we understand that can't be what Paul's talking about. He's, he's not saying don't don't be conformed to the physical world, to the earth and the stars and everything around you. Who's going to be able to do that? Who can rightly do that? I know there's some nonsense people who think they can you know get so much into this fog that they can become part of the inner beings of the world in their mystical kind of way. But that's not true. No one can conform to be the universe of creation around them. Normally, as we've heard from the other passages that I already looked at, the term world means life being lived really apart from an acknowledgement of God. That's the idea. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, the evil age. It's a life that's lived apart from the acknowledgement of God. Life that isn't governed or controlled by the thinking of God. It right, goes right back to that spiritual service, this mind. What is controlling your mind? And so you are either belong to the world or you belong to the kingdom of God. Those are the two things. So being of the world is life that is lived as a result of the fall, right? Sin, the fall. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 says... And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, the gospel is, is antithetical to the thinking of God or to the to the world's thinking. And so Paul is saying the gospel is hid by the God of this world. He's the one who is in control of the godless system. The one who rules in those who reject the gospel. So world there means living that is apart from God. Living that is controlled by Satan. And at one point we were all part of that world. Ephesians 2 declares that. Right? It's a great description of what it looks like to be of the world. Here's what it looks like to be of the world. You want to get a description of it? Here it is Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, verse 1, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived, what? In the lusts of our flesh indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. you want a description of what it means to live according to the world? Ephesians 2, 1 to 4 says it. So when you look at the New Testament, the world can be a physical universe. It can be a spiritual force of evil. Life under that evil age. But it can also mean the flesh. The flesh. Not, not the skin on your bones. The idea, the, the term, the life that is lived according to the principles of the evil age. That's to live according to the flesh, according to the world. It's a synonymous idea. We've seen this a lot of times already in Romans. And just to show you this really quickly, go back to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. Notice what he says. For what the law could not do... Weak as it was through the flesh, that is through sin, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Why? Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God. In fact, it isn't even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, But if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness, but if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who indwells you. So you can't say, I can't do it. You have the Spirit of God indwelling your mortal body. We can do it we can do what god says because he's equipped us to do what he says so the world is that which follows after the flesh not after the spirit that's clear from romans chapter 8 so i i hope at least as we scratch the surface of this i hope that we can see here that we cannot understand what is being taught to us about christian conduct about how to rightly live our Christian lives unless we understand what world means. We can't understand it unless we understand what reasonable means in verse 1. You will not find out how you are to be living from the philosophies of the world. You will not find out what you're supposed to do in your Christian life, how do you carry yourself by your recent blog page. You're not going to find it out. By going on the internet. Unless you're reading the scriptures. Unless somebody is rightly dividing the word of God there. Some do. But most. Most that are read anyway do not. Why? Because they have no capacity to give right answers. They have no capacity to to give you what is right. Why? Because they do not make a distinction between the world and the kingdom of God. They say that all men are the same. Without distinction. All you're left with, with that, is a fallen opinion. All you're left with is subjective guesses about what's right. About what's honoring. About what I should do. What is worship. It doesn't matter how moral it may seem to be. That's not the determining factor. Well, that looks moral and that doesn't look moral. That's not it. It doesn't matter how educated the person is who is espousing such kinds of things. It doesn't matter what realm it comes from. If it's of the world, they do not understand because they begin at the wrong place. If they do not account for why things are the way they are. Then the solution is just worldly. Things are the way they are because of sin. Because of fallenness. If man doesn't take that to account. Their diagnosis is going to be flawed every time. It may look good. It may even appear to be helping some people. But it will not glorify God. You see, we as Christians, we are to look at life, we are to look at the troubles of life from a whole different perspective. We're not to look at it like the world looks at it. And this is why sometimes we get ourselves in trouble. This is why we get ourselves in trouble. Because the moment that we expect our world to live as moral beings is the moment that we fail to recognize that they are completely Unable to do that. They are being ruled by the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2 said. They are being ruled by the God of this world. We do not fight against flesh and blood. We fight against principalities, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies, it said. You see, we can't begin to live rightly unless we start in the right place. We can't begin. We will not understand the true problem in this world. And if we don't understand the true problem in this world, then we, in our own lives, unless we start in the right place with saturating our minds with the Word of God, will always end up in the wrong place. No matter how good it looks. No matter how different it looks from the world. Every sin is formed in the same womb. Every sin is formed in the same womb. It's formed from an evil heart and an evil mind. So, beloved, listen. It's not about our externals. Don't get the idea in your minds that what Paul is saying here is don't be conformed to this world as if he's talking about externals. Don't get that in your mind. What Paul is talking about here is their thinking, where they start. He's not saying that if we stay away from certain external activities that we now have identified in our little list as the world, then you will be a good sacrificial Christian. He's not saying that. That as long as you don't watch certain TV programs, that as long as you don't eat certain kinds of foods as long as you homeschool or don't homeschool, that you are a good and God-honoring Christian. That's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying that. No. What Paul is talking about has everything to do with the inside. The internal. What's driving our mind. What's driving our thinking. It all begins there. It all begins there. That's why he's going to say, as we'll get into next time. that's why he's going to say, But be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your activities? Your behavior? Do different things? No. Be renewed by the renewing, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because that's where it starts. It starts in your mind. Our spiritual service of worship is a worship that is reasonable. It is reasoned from the truth. What we do is reasoned from the truth, not from the thinking of the world. That's what Paul's saying. How we are to think. How is it we're to think? Well, we'll get into that next time. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for... This time this morning, I know it's been quick, it's been fast. I've been talking so fast, it seems. I hope that by your Spirit, people could keep up with it. Lord, I, we trust your Word. We thank you for it. Lord, conform our lives to it. I know we go about, oftentimes, convincing ourselves that we are already, and sometimes even arrogantly, unwilling to learn what the Word of God says, because we say, we already got it down. Oh, Lord, humble us, humble us. Cause us to always be learning. Never thinking that just because I've been saved for so long or just because I've been in the church for so long or just because I've seemed to be practicing this whatever it is for so long that it must be right. Let us go back to the Word of God. Find out what you say by principle and precept. Challenge our own thinking with it. Cause us where necessary, if need be, to change. And always allow, Lord your grace and mercy to shine so that we could grow in it. We thank you for that. Forgive us where we're wrong, where we've been conceited and prideful and our hearts have been arrogant, condemning. Lord, thank you for the Apostle Paul and how he's affected our minds already. Thank you for the spirit that's challenged us with the truth. Cause us by your grace to live according to it. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.